how can someone live their entire lives as a law-abiding citizen and then just one day snap and commit one of the most heinous crimes ever? Which version of that person is more true? How can they coexist? Furthermore, how do you live with yourself once the monster comes out? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a multi-hyphenate human who is confident I will never have to add mass murderer to my list of identifiers. It's hard to imagine that the ability to do unspeakable violence comes out of nowhere. Mustn't it fester and grow somewhere inside a person before the dark urge becomes so great they can no longer resist? Today's story is about a man who seemingly snapped in the most horrific way under worldly pressure. But for how long had the storm of violence been brewing inside of John List's mind? If ever there were a singular this fucking guy, this fucking guy was that fucking guy. It's impossible to know if he was born that fucking guy or if his extremely religious and restrictive childhood turned him in to that fucking guy. I have yet to hear a story about someone who was raised in an extremely religious household, isolated from people their own age, and warned against doing things like dancing because of the kind of people it might attract, who grew up to be a well-adjusted, outgoing, productive member of society. In reality, that story never seems to end well. Ever. John List was no exception. Growing up in Bay City, Michigan, in a strict Lutheran household, in a community of mostly German speakers, List was cut off from his English-speaking secular peers. Finally, in high school, he was able to make some friends, but he never had a girlfriend. After graduating high school in 1943, List joined the army despite his mother's protests. Your home life must be bad if your solution is to join the army in the middle of a massive world war. Only a year after joining, List's father died and he returned home for the funeral. According to a piece from True TV's crime library, at the funeral, quote, people noticed that he showed no signs of grief. Already, he seemed cold and unmoved, end quote. After the war, List earned an MBA in accounting from the University of Michigan and landed himself an accounting job. No sooner had he started the new job than List was recalled to service, this time in the Korean War. Fortunately, this time he was stationed far from the front in Virginia, where in 1951 he met widowed single mother Helen Morris. Years later, List would tell psychologist Dr. Stephen Simring that a month into dating, Helen, who had a child from a previous marriage, told List she was pregnant. However, he said, once their wedding plans were finalized, she told him she wasn't pregnant. It's impossible to know if Helen had lied to begin with, or if she'd been mistaken, or if she'd miscarried, or hell, if List was lying. But a couple things stick out to me about this story. One, if Helen knew she was pregnant one month into dating John, that baby wasn't his. Unless she had some preternatural ability to sense pregnancy right away. I'm willing to bet the pregnancy tests in 1951 weren't 
the take at home as early as two weeks before your period kind, you know? And two, for someone so religious, he certainly was doing some premarital hanky-panky pretty quick. After he was discharged from the Army, John and Helen married and moved back to Michigan, where John resumed his job with a prestigious accounting firm. Between 1955 and 58, the couple had three children. Patricia List, born in 1955, John Frederick List, born in 1956, and Frederick Michael List, born in 1958. Years later, Brenda, Helen's daughter from her previous marriage, recalled helping to raise her first two step-siblings. In 1960, at 17, Brenda ran away with a boyfriend and got pregnant. And while her young affair with her boyfriend didn't last, she would later come to realize what a good decision it had been to leave. In between having Patty and John, List moved the family to Kalamazoo, where Helen began to pull away from the family. She stopped attending church and started drinking, much to John's disapproval. So he did the healthy thing. He got angry and sulked in private and then got Helen pregnant again because, Lord knows, nothing fixes an unhappy marriage like not communicating and having more children. Then in 1961, John moved the family again, this time to Rochester, New York for a cushy job at Xerox. In Rochester, John finally got a taste of the finer things in life. <laughs> That might be one of the funniest sentences I've ever written. In Rochester, John finally got a taste of the finer things in life. In his memoir, because yes, of course he wrote a memoir, John wrote, On the sunny side of 40, I was clearly a success. He wrote of taking trips to Europe, according to a piece on NJ.com, quote, with Helen in tow, end quote, which is how I describe everything I do with my spouse. I did a fabulous thing. Also, my husband was there. But John continued in his memoir. I was totally unaware of the storm clouds building on my professional horizon. Honey, your professional horizon was not the one you needed an umbrella for. In 1965, List was fired from Xerox when his boss, who probably looked like a less attractive version of John Slattery in Mad Men, told him he couldn't keep up with the fast-paced, growing company. In response, List turned around and got himself hired as vice president and comptroller at First National Bank of Jersey City and moved his family again, this time to Westfield, New Jersey, home of the infamous Watcher House. <laughs> what a town! Call me overly cautious, but if I'd been fired for not being able to keep up, I'm pretty sure I'd be as conservative with my financial decisions as I could. At least for a while, you know? But not John List. John decided the best course of action was to buy a 19-room, three-story mansion called Breeze Knoll. It was the most expensive house in the neighborhood, and he borrowed $10,000 from his mother for the down payment. Again, like, if you can't afford the down payment, maybe consider something slightly more practical. Like, maybe not a mansion with a ballroom with a Tiffany glass ceiling. List also had the third floor renovated and moved his mother Alma in. The List family seemed to the neighbors to be the very epitome of the American dream. But it didn't take long for the facade of the perfect family to become tarnished. 
John liked to chase kids who used his front lawn as a shortcut. He once threw gravel at a nine-year-old who was playing on a construction site next door. And he threw rocks multiple times at another neighbor's pet donkey. Because you know what it says in the Bible, don't you? Man hath the right to defend his mansion from children, even those who aren't on his property, and donkeys, which I'm pretty sure are the holiest of animals. So remember a couple minutes ago when I said maybe he should have waited to buy a mansion with priceless fucking ceilings until he had a little stability? Well, 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 look who was right. In 1966, List got fired again. Despite a hefty mortgage, a wife, three kids, and an elderly mother to support, List didn't look for another job. He also didn't apply for unemployment because he later admitted he was too proud. But apparently what he wasn't too proud to do was lie to his wife about having been fired and drive to the train station every day where he would sit and read during regular business hours and then go home like he'd been at the office all day. List eventually managed to get another job, but was let go again in 1969 when the firm moved to Long Island. To his credit, this time he didn't sit at the train station all day, but instead got a job selling life insurance and took out a second mortgage. When that wasn't cutting it, he drained his mother's bank account. Authorities would later say he essentially stole $200,000 from his mother, or nearly $1.5 million in today money. Even with all that money, List still took out a third mortgage in 1971. I don't know what List was doing with the money he was taking from his mother, but he certainly wasn't paying his mortgage payments. By the fall of 1971, List was months behind on payments and received a letter from the bank letting him know they'd foreclose on his giant house if he didn't pay up right quick. List was also overcome with worry that his children were, quote, slipping off the path of righteousness. Let me repeat that for those of you in the back. This fucking guy, when he wasn't busy lying to his wife and stealing from his mother, two things which I'm pretty sure are considered like deadly sins or whatever, was worried his children were slipping off the path of righteousness. Okay? What, you may be wondering, were these teens doing that so worried their father? Why, just existing. Patty, by the time she was in junior high, was sometimes cutting class to smoke cigarettes and, wait for it, take the bus to Elizabeth, New Jersey, for fun. Everyone knows Elizabeth, New Jersey is the very gateway to hell itself. But the biggest insult to Jesus was when Patty joined a local theater group. NJ.com said that John was particularly concerned because the group was run by an, quote, unorthodox, end quote, man by the name of Ed Iliano. And I'm sure we can assume that unorthodox is code for gay or Italian, or worst of all, a gay Italian. Liz started banning certain people from Patty's life. He became consumed with the idea that Patty was hanging out in the park, quote, laughing and flirting, smoking cigarettes and sometimes pot, end quote. We all know what a slippery slope laughing is. John was also getting increasingly angry with his wife for missing church, drinking and having an opinion about their shitty marriage. 
Her behavior, he felt, was not that of, quote, a good Christian wife, end quote. And he was clearly the paragon of a good Christian anything. And so, with the bills mounting and his family falling into the hands of Satan, or at the very least, gay Italians, John List made the only decision a man could make under the circumstances. He decided to murder his entire family. Obviously. In an interview with Connie Chung in 2002, List was like, Look, I was worried that being poor was going to make my family less religious, so I had to make a tough decision. Um, okay. Filing for bankruptcy would have been a tough decision. What you made, my friend, was the wrong decision. Of all the decisions you could have made, this one was categorically the wrong one. So beginning around October 1971, John began planning what he believed was the humane way to help his family out of the mess he had made. He found his old pistols from World War II, which the NJ.com piece referred to as souvenirs. No, a souvenir is a useless flattened penny from a throughway rest stop, or like a pretty rock you found on a hike. A gun is not a souvenir. John came up with a cover story in case people started asking where his family had suddenly gone to. He would say they'd gone to visit Helen's dying mother in North Carolina. He planned on canceling the newspaper and milk deliveries and had his excuses ready for his boss, his kids' carpools to school, and their teachers. What's remarkable is that in all this planning, it never seemed to occur to him that the plan was ill-planned. The next part of List's elaborate, if completely facocta plan, was to get himself a new identity, which in 1971 was remarkably easy. This fucking guy just walked into the Social Security Administrative Office in New Jersey and goes, yeah, hey, um, so it looks like I lost my Social Security card. And then the clerk was like, well, don't worry, I'll get you a new card. Oh, what did you say your name was? And he didn't have to show a stitch of ID to prove he was who he said he was. He just said, uh, the name's uh, Bob Bobertson or whatever. And off the clerk went to issue Bob Bobertson a new Social Security card. Okay, he didn't actually use the name Bob Bobertson, but you get the point. And he didn't do this just once. He did it multiple times. This guy thought of everything except for, you know, just generally not being a piece of shit. Anyway, then he asked his family what they would want done with their bodies in the event that they died, whether they wanted to be cremated or buried. Oh, now you're going to take interest in what they actually might want? List would later say he thought he was being really clever asking his family these questions, but Patty, his eldest daughter, was literally like, to fuck and became convinced that her father wanted to kill her. Later, the unorthodox theater group leader, Ed Iliano, would testify that Patty came to him in early November, sobbing and in hysterics, telling him her father had threatened to kill her and her brothers. Iliano told the New York Times he reported the threat to police and... They treated me like I was a... idiot... Who knows what might have happened if police had taken Iliano's report seriously? Could he have saved their lives? 
So, we have reached the inevitable point in this story where I have to relay what this fucking guy did. It's not fun. And as usual, I'm going to try to not be too needlessly graphic. On the morning of November 9th, 1971, after getting his children off to school, John loaded his pistols. He entered the kitchen where Helen was having breakfast and shot her near her left ear. She died pretty much instantly. He then went up to his mother's apartment on the third floor. She asked him what the loud noise had been, and he said he had no idea, and then, he would later say in an interview, he kissed her, quote, like Judas, which is, dial it down, buddy. You are not a biblical figure, and none of this is at all like Judas portraying Jesus. Just knock it off. And then he shot her in the face. His intention, apparently, had been to move his mother's body downstairs, but she was too heavy. He dragged her body to a storage room and partially hid her behind a water heater. Back downstairs, he dragged Helen's body to the ballroom, later on one of the three sleeping bags he'd placed there, face down, and covered her with a couple of towels. He then spent some time cleaning up the blood from both of the women he'd killed. List then ran some errands, preparing to leave town. He cashed his mother's savings bonds, stopped the family's mail at the post office, and made his planned calls explaining that Helen and the kids and his mother had gone to North Carolina, where he planned to join them. Then he went back home and sat down at the table at which he'd killed his wife a few hours earlier and ate a sandwich. Because, he would tell Connie Chung in 2002, I was hungry. That's just the way it was. And yes, he did chuckle when he said it, because ha 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 ha, it was all just so funny, I guess. There was a slight hiccup in List's plans when Patty called and said she wasn't feeling well and asked if he would pick her up early from school, which apparently he did begrudgingly because ugh, ugh. There's nothing worse than being in the middle of executing the perfect murder only to be thwarted by your stupid kid and her stupid stomach ache. When they got home, John hurried to get inside so that he could crouch and hide behind the door when she came in. As soon as she did, he shot her at close range in the back of the head. I suppose at least he didn't make their deaths awful and drawn out. I think the only thing worse than being murdered is being murdered by someone you love and trust and knowing they're murdering you. Anyway. List brought Patty's body to the ballroom and laid her near her mother's. He repeated his crouching behind the door act with his youngest child, Fred, who apparently didn't even have time to take his coat off before his father shot him in the head. He placed Fred's body in the ballroom so that his head was touching his mother's head. When List's middle child, John Jr., came home earlier than expected, List shot him ten times, apparently emptying both guns into his son's body. List later told Connie Chung, I don't know whether it was only because he was still jerking that I wanted to make sure that he didn't suffer, or that it was sort of a way of relieving tension after having completed what I felt was my assignment for the day. After placing John Jr. in the ballroom with the rest of his family, List sat down and wrote a confession to his pastor, ate dinner because ha ha ha, he was hungry, and then, for some reason, 
slept in the billiard room in the basement. I would make a clue-themed joke here, but I'm too sad. The next morning, November 10th, 1971, John turned the thermostat all the way down to 50 degrees, turned on every light in the house, and then, for some reason, piped funeral music at top volume through the intercom system in the house. He packed a suitcase, cut himself out of every picture in the house, and left. He drove to JFK Airport and with $2,500 and one suitcase, disappeared from his own life. Back on Hillside Avenue in Westfield, New Jersey, neighbors noticed the lights had been left on in the house but didn't think much of it as people often left lights on as a burglar deterrent. But after a few weeks had gone by and the lights started to blink out one by one, Dr. Bill Cunnick, a neighbor from across the street, started getting worried. Meanwhile, Patty's unorthodox drama coach, Ed Iliano, was also getting suspicious. First, Patty confides in him that her father literally threatened to kill her and her brothers. Then the family left town without warning, and now the lights had been on in the house for nearly a month. Ileano and a friend drove by the house several times before deciding to see if anyone was actually home. It seems Ileano had gone to the police again with concerns about the family's well-being and was, again, ignored. But on the day that he and his friend decided to see what was going on, Dr. Koenig had also called the police to voice his concerns about his neighbors. Then Dr. Koenig saw Ileano and his friend, quote, snooping around outside List's house, and once again, he called the police. When patrolman George H. Jelesnik arrived, Ileano once again explained his concern. Finally, it seems, he was being taken seriously, and Officer Zelesnik found an open window on the side porch and entered. The first thing the small group was struck by was the bizarre organ music blasting throughout the house, like they'd just stumbled in to Vincent Price's house. Zelesnik told Ileano to stay outside, which, for some incomprehensible reason, Ileano ignored. Look, I get that you're concerned, buddy, but, like, whatever is in there is probably not something you want to have to live with in your brain for the rest of your life, you know? Ileano managed to get to the ballroom just ahead of Zelesnik, which was shrouded in darkness with all the lights having burned out. In the beam of Officer Zelesnik's flashlight, they could see the bodies of Helen, Patty, John Jr., and Fred. Following the trail of blood led them to the kitchen, which clearly from the bullet holes was where the lists had been shot. In the search of the house, they then found List's mother, Alma's body, on the third floor. Neighbor Dr. Kunick was called in to identify the bodies, which, despite the coldish temperature inside the house, had, of course, begun to decompose. Dr. Kunick identified Alma, Helen, Patty, John Jr., and Fred, which meant that there was one member of the List family missing. Where was John List? It didn't take a forensic genius to surmise that John had killed his family and performed a disappearing act. In his home office, John had left a treasure trove of information, including instructions on how to get into the locked filing cabinet that held various letters List had written before leaving, including a note about a $500 loan he'd taken from his boss, apologies to family members, and the confession letter he'd written to his pastor. 
The note is very long. Of course it is. This guy clearly thought very highly of himself, so of course he fucking sat down after killing his whole family and pontificated for pages. But the gist of it is basically he killed his family as an act of mercy because he believed his mistakes were leading them toward a heathen life. He admitted that he could have filed for bankruptcy, but... Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing that they were on welfare, was just more than I thought they could and should endure. Knowing the type of location. Hmm. Remember when Jesus said that thing about how hard it is for a wealthy man to get into heaven? Me too! And I'm not even a Christian! He even admits in the letter that his family had expressed a willingness to cut back on expenses, but that wouldn't have been enough, he argued. He worried that Patty's interest in acting was a road straight to hell, which I have to give him that one. I've been an actor for 30 years, and I've been getting letters from Christians since I was 11 telling me I was going to hell. So that one tracks. List continued. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from the hymn book. That was the least I could do. I mean, the least you could have done was not kill them. But also, he'd planned on killing them all on All Saints Day, but he was thwarted by travel plans. He wrote, I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. He also wrote, As for me, please let me be dropped from the congregation rules. I leave myself in the hands of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way I hoped they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Um, a full life, dude. A full life. Wow. Also, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way that I hoped they would be answered? I mean, just... wow. Also, I want to be very clear here. I don't think this man was a Christian. Like, I'm not sitting here thinking that this is Christ-like at all. So please don't feel the need to defend your religion to me on social media. I get it. While police were sifting through List's psychopathy, a search for List himself was already underway. Just two days after the bodies were found in the home, John's car was found parked in the JFK airport parking lot with a parking voucher dated November 10th. But he wasn't listed on any flights out of JFK. Of course, he could have used one of the many names he'd gotten at the Social Security office, but the trail went cold from there. A funeral was held on December 11th for Alma, Helen, Patty, John Jr., and Fred List, after which Alma's body was flown to her home in Michigan to be buried alongside her late husband. And just five days later, despite his absence, John List was indicted on five counts of murder and fleeing a crime scene across state lines. 
Investigators really had no clue where List might have disappeared to. At one point, there were even rumors that List had assumed a pseudonym, hijacked an airplane, and jumped from the back of it with a suitcase full of ransom money. Yes, some believed he might have been D.B. Cooper. The FBI spread as much information as they could, as far and wide as they could, including, according to NJ.com, details about List's, quote, brisk military gait and notable scars, his hemorrhoids, back pain, and love of military strategy games, end quote. His hemorrhoids? Pardon? Attention, if you see this man with hemorrhoids out of his asshole, please contact authorities immediately. Every single tip and lead was followed up on, and for years, every single tip and lead led exactly nowhere. But then, almost 20 years later, after no progress at all, investigators convinced the producers of America's Most Wanted to run a piece on List. Producers initially declined, saying the case was too cold and there wasn't enough to go on. But after seeing all the crime scene photos, producer Michael Linder was moved to run the story, even though they had very few photos of List himself. Remember, he had gone to the trouble of removing himself from all the pictures in the home, probably specifically for this reason. America's Most Wanted producer Margaret Roberts told the New York Times, Our show hinges on the indelible image of the human face. In this case... All we have was precious few photographs, almost 20 years old. But they took what few photos they had to a forensic sculptor who ended up creating a bust that, honestly, is pretty damn close. The sculptor noted that while List's lips curved up slightly in the photos, he made the lips of his sculpture curve down slightly because he said, quote, I turned the corners of his mouth down. It was not that he felt he was guilty, but that he was afraid of getting caught. End quote. The episode aired on May 21st, 1989, and prompted a whole new wave of tips. Of the 300 tips that came in, 200 were considered substantive leads. One of those leads came from a young man whose mother, Wanda Flannery in Denver, Colorado, thought the bust of John List looked an awful lot like her friend Dolores's husband, Robert P. Clark. Dolores and Robert had recently moved from Denver to Virginia, and Wanda just happened to have their new address. Turns out, List, with his stolen identity, took a series of buses and trains from JFK to Colorado because, he told Simmering, he wanted to see the mountains. How nice for him. You know who else would have probably liked to have seen the mountains? The five people he murdered. In Denver, John bought a trailer and worked as a line cook in a hotel. He grew out a mustache and lived an extremely low-profile life. For the first four years, he stayed on the right side of the law, wore a baseball cap pulled low over his face, and didn't go to church for the first time in his life. It's okay. I'm sure Jesus understood. By 1975, he started to relax a little. He joined a local church and took a job as an accountant for a carpet company. Two years after that, in 1977, List met Dolores Miller, a quiet, reserved, devoutly religious woman. Dolores, as anyone getting to know someone would do, asked about John's past, which he seemed to just simply not have. I don't know how he got around it, but eventually she just let the subject drop. Listen, 
someone not telling you anything about their past is not something you should just shrug and move on from, you know? I'm sure in retrospect, Dolores was like, oops, but come on. Knowing where someone comes from is pretty basic stuff. Despite that, John and Dolores dated for seven years, though God only knows what they fucking talked about. And then, 14 years after he murdered his entire family and just drove away from his life, Robert P. Clark, a.k.a. John List, married Dolores. But you know what they say, wherever you go, there you are. By 1986, List had lost his accounting job and was blowing through Dolores' savings, trying out various money-making ventures. This fucking guy. Then in 1987, Dolores' friend Wanda saw a story about John List in a supermarket tabloid. I don't know if it included a picture of John from his pre-murdering years or what, but Wanda showed it to Dolores and said, that's Bob. Apparently, Dolores agreed that it looked like him, but refused to believe it. Wanda wanted Dolores to confront List with the picture, which is like, how exactly would that have gone? Say, doesn't the man in this picture who murdered his entire family look just like you, honey? Uh, hold on, let me go get my gun. Uh, I mean, my glasses. Come on. In 1988, List landed a job in Virginia, which is where the FBI finally caught up with him, following tips from the viewers of America's Most Wanted. List was arrested at work, and while he wouldn't admit to police that he was, in fact, John List, when Dolores came to visit him in jail, he confessed to her. One wonders what she must have thought when he explained that the reason he'd killed his family was because the money was running out, considering he had also been spending away Dolores' money. Would she have been next? At his trial, List addressed the court, saying, I wish to inform the court I remain truly sorry for the tragic events of 1971. I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. To which the judge basically said, Go fuck yourself for five life sentences in prison. Which is what he did. Apparently, he spent his time in prison watching Rush Limbaugh. So, you know, next time your racist Uncle Ted starts quoting Rush Limbaugh, you can tell him what kinds of people are Rush Limbaugh fans. In 2002, he gave an interview to Connie Chung in which he said a lot of awful, garbagey things, including this about his family he murdered. I feel that when we go to heaven, we won't worry about these earthly things. They'll either have forgiven me or won't realize you know what happened. I'm sure that if we recognize each other, that we'll like each other's company just as we did here when times were better. It was my belief that if you kill yourself, you won't go to heaven. So eventually I got to the point where I felt that I could kill them. Hopefully they would go to heaven, and then maybe I would have a chance to later confess my sins to God and get forgiveness. Okay, buddy, you keep telling yourself that. John List died in 2008. His death certificate noted the cause of death as, 
quote, massive blood clots in his lungs attributed to sepsis and empyema, an accumulation of pus on the outside of the lungs, end quote. So we can at least rest assured that in his last few weeks, he was probably in tremendous pain. John List never expressed remorse for the awful things he did that November morning in 1971. It seems that right up to the end, he believed he was justified in stealing the lives of five people who trusted and relied on him. Let's hope in his last few painful, sepsis-filled breaths, he saw the gates of hell open at the foot of his hospital bed and the red, scaly, clawed hand of the devil wrap its fingers around his sorry neck. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, when septuagenarian Minnie Winston stepped out of her bathtub one night to find blood shooting up from the floors of her house, it kicked off a mystery that to this day has never been solved. The mystery of the bleeding house. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Ryan Garcia, and Crystal Simmons. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is The Unapologetic Man Podcast. Podcast. 